This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 9th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Today begins the second impeachment trial for now former President Donald Trump after he spun up and appeared generally supportive of that angry mob that attacked the Capitol just as lawmakers began certifying the 2020 presidential election. The president lost that election. Cato's Gene Healy previews the trial, including the arguments of Republicans like Rand Paul, who argue the whole exercise itself is unconstitutional. So for 230 years of the Republic, we had had two impeachment trials, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. And we're now about to start the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. He's being uh, charged with a, a broad charge of incitement of insurrection. What does that mean? Uh, well, it's basically for the January 6th stop the steal rally speech. Uh, the article of impeachment says that Trump willfully made statements that encouraged and foreseeably resulted in imminent lawless action at the Capitol, the Capitol riot, insurrection, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, put more simply, it's the charges that the president of the United States spun up a violent mob hoping to intimidate Congress into overturning the results of an election that he lost, uh, which sounds kind of bad when you when you put it that way. Uh, when you put it that way, uh, it sounds like a, a more serious charge than we've seen in uh, recent impeachment efforts, uh, more serious than perjuring yourself in a sexual harassment civil suit or maybe even covering up the Watergate burglary. <sighs> The article of impeachment, correct me if I'm wrong, does make reference to uh, that phone call that he made to Georgia officials just days earlier. Right. It does. It's not a, a separate charge. It's part of the context. Uh, the, the call uh, asking Georgia election officials to uh, find him more votes uh, that, that is mentioned in the impeachment article. But the, the crux of the article is the is the pre-riot rally speech on January 6th and what happened immediately after that. So what are the defenses that his attorneys, which, uh, as I understand it, his, his legal team has turned over at least once? Yeah, he went through a couple of, uh, you know, this is the second legal legal team, and they filed uh, an answer to the uh, the pretty brief document, but an answer to the charges uh, last Tuesday. And there are a number of defenses. Uh, one of them is uh, First Amendment free speech. Uh, another is the, the that the rushed House impeachment process represents a denial of constitutional due process to the president. And the third, which where I think it is a lot of the debate is going to focus, is essentially the the proceeding before the Senate is a legal nullity because Trump is no longer president and the Senate can't try an ex-president. All right. So on the First Amendment, the notion that the president is well within his rights to say largely whatever he wants, how are they making that claim? The answer filed by his attorneys says that uh, the article of impeachment itself violates Trump's right to free speech and thought guaranteed under the First Amendment to the Constitution. 
this, like I said, it's a, it's a pretty spare document. There's going to be a fuller trial brief uh, before we get down to brass tacks. But the argument is going to be that the legal standard for criminal incitement, for criminally prosecuting someone for incitement uh, consistent with the First Amendment, that's what's going to apply in the impeachment context. Uh, so the Supreme Court, as it should, has set a high bar towards criminalizing political speech. Uh, the key case is Brandenburg versus Ohio from 1969, uh, which uh, somewhat awkwardly, for the purposes of defending the president, involved a uh, speech given by a KKK leader uh, who was convicted under an Ohio statute prescribing criminal syndicalism. And the court said that they overturned the conviction. They said that uh, the to convict someone for speech alone, the speech has to be, for incitement, the speech has to be intended to provoke imminent lawless action and likely to get that result. Uh, somewhat, another law professor has described it as, you know, standing in front of a, a torches and pitchfork mob outside a poorly guarded jail and you're shouting, let's go get this guy. Uh, so it's a high, it's a high bar to, uh, to criminalizing, to throwing someone in jail for something that they said. Uh, and, you know, if somebody decides to prosecute Donald Trump uh, in, in the criminal context, uh, he'll get all the benefit of that standard. But it's not applicable here. Um, it, impeachment's not a criminal process. Uh, the Trump legal team's argument here is essentially that if you can't send a KKK Klegel to jail for criminal incitement, that you can't impeach the president for it. And that's just not how it, it works. It's never worked that way. We've got a, a completely different context. Uh, you know, the impeachment is a process at the end of which uh, an impeached official uh, loses his job and or can be disqualified for holding future office. It's not a process uh, that ends up with loss of liberty in jail. Two of the first three impeachments, uh, very close to uh, ratification of the Constitution, uh, this is uh, Judge John Pickering in 1804, uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase in 1805. These two of the first three impeachments, and they involved protected speech. Pickering himself was the first federal official ever removed from office uh, through the impeachment process. And uh, that involved, uh, you know, showing up to work drunk and uh, using some mild profanities uh, from the bench. Um, on top of that, the the very first presidential impeachment of Andrew Johnson also involved what would be, in other contexts, First Amendment activity. The tenth article of impeachment against Johnson was based on what the House called the the series of intemperate inflammatory and scandalous harangues that he'd, he'd given in a bunch of speeches on the campaign trail. The impeachment history shows that uh, you're not dealing with First Amendment standards in a, a criminal context, and on top of which, none of those guys, uh, Pickering, Chase, or President Johnson, managed to rile up a violent mob, mob that sacked the Capitol. Um, it, you know, it if the First Amendment applies here 
uh, at all, it would the analogy wouldn't be to uh, criminal incitement cases. It would be to government employee speech cases, uh, and there the standard is lower. Uh, you know, you can fire uh, a government employee for uh, an intemperate rant or something that falls short that affects their job but falls short of uh, something you could prosecute them for criminally. Uh, the other aspect of this that is uh, strange, if you say that uh, free speech in the First Amendment would be a, a line of defense for the president, there were a lot of actions that were taken and other statements that he made uh, both before and after this attack on the Capitol. I mean, ho holding the rally itself, this was the last of a great number of rallies in states leading up to January 6th. That were, of course, called Stop the Steal. Um, and uh, the president, of course, on January 6th, earlier that day, lied about the powers of the vice president when it comes to rejecting electors. Right. I mean, it, there have been some statements by uh, Rand Paul and, and others that you know, in this, uh, this January 6th rally speech that, well, the president said, do it peacefully. And... Uh, the standard, the, the, the approach is sort of unless he said, go on over to the Capitol, kill a cop or two and smash the windows and send Congress members fleeing, then he's in the clear. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Uh, that's not how the fir First Amendment would apply in this context. Uh, again, it would be very tough, and I think rightfully so, to, to prosecute somebody based on uh, the sort of speech he gave. But that's not what we're about here. There's also a very strange aspect to it where, in some cases, some of the same Republican members of Congress that are saying, you know, that this is just free speech uh, and the president has his First Amendment rights and can suffer no consequence whatsoever uh, for what he said in that speech. Uh, some of the same people are saying that, uh, uh, well, you you really shouldn't proceed with this impeachment because it's going to make people angrier. You know, it might lead to violence. Uh, so the president is free and clear as long as he didn't tell anybody uh, to commit violent action. But the potential of a violent mob being uh, aroused by impeachment, well, they get kind of a heckler's veto over a peaceful, legal, constitutional process. It's a very strange way to look at uh, this kind of thing. What about the due process argument, the notion that uh, this impeachment was rushed? Well, it was rushed. Uh, you know, it, uh, they impeached him a week after the uh, attack on the Capitol. And at that point, there was a week left in his term. Uh, Trump's lawyers in their answer really lay it on thick here. Uh, he's the most persecuted individual in America. Uh, the House impeachment process, that's not a quote, but it's sort of what's in the background here. Uh, well, they did say, this is a quote, that the House's rushed impeachment process created a special category of citizenship for a single individual, the 45th president, who is no longer to enjoy the rights of all American citizens. He's just been uniquely persecuted by this process. There's really nothing to this argument. Uh, the House has the sole power of impeachment in Article 1, and uh, that doesn't guarantee you 
at the, the House level a full-dress trial. Uh, the analogy that people make is to a grand jury indictment, and grand jury targets don't have a constitutional right to tell their whole story or even testify before a grand jury. In some cases, don't have the right uh, even to know that they're targets. And that's a process that can end up with the person going to jail. Uh, historically, the amount of process uh, people are due in a House impeachment hearing has been pretty flexible. Uh, the first president, presidential impeachment, uh, 1868, Andrew Johnson, the House impeached him three days after he fired his secretary of war, which was the triggering offense for that impeachment. Uh, they didn't even draft specific articles of impeachment until after they'd already voted to impeach him. So it's always been a pretty informal process. Um, the Senate trial is where you're supposed to get witnesses uh, and, uh, you know, something that looks much more like traditional due process and where you have a detailed examination of the evidence. But Trump's lawyers and most Republicans in Congress don't want that either. The The view is uh, sort of is like a catch-22. Uh, the House moved too fast, but the Senate moved too slow. Uh, if only they'd done it just right, because uh, because they didn't have that trial in the Senate uh, during the last week of his presidency, he's no longer president. And so now you can't try an ex-president. One of the odd statements that I've heard, most notably from Rand Paul, is this claim, you can't impeach a former president. And my reaction to that is has always been, well, he was president when they took the vote, but there are some other legal scholars who have said, no, 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 the impeachment doesn't actually occur until the House delivers paperwork to the Senate. Yeah, I don't think that work that works either. He, he he's impeached when the House votes. Uh, you know, there, there's nothing in the Constitution about when Nancy Pelosi sends over the articles. I will say that this uh, this is their best defense, and it is uh, an interpretive question on which people of uh, good faith can disagree. The argument uh, that they're making is that. Uh, relies heavily on Article 2, Section 4, which says that the president shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of uh, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. It doesn't say the ex-president. And the idea is that uh, that is, that is that that's the gamut of officials who can be subject to this process. It says the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States, it does not say former uh, civil officers. And that is one way, although not the mandatory way, or I think even the best way to, to read that clause, but there, there also is not the only clause dealing with impeachment. Um, as you say, the, the, uh, we did not impeach an ex-president. The question is whether the Senate has the power to try convict and possibly disqualify someone that is now an ex-president who was impeached by the House while serving as president. Uh, the relevant enumerated power there is in Article 1, uh, that the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. Uh, the House impeached Trump 
When he was president on January 13th, the Senate is about to try that impeachment. Uh, the text alone doesn't set, settle the issue. Uh, you know, when you have uh, competing plausible interpretations, and particularly when you have uh, the other issue, which is that there's another penalty that the Constitution men mentions for impeachment, which is disqualification. When this interpretation that the president's lawyers and uh, a lot of Republicans are placing so much weight on would uh, have the present the difficulty that a person can make themselves an ex-official at any time. They can literally quit after the 66th vote to convict in the Senate and say, now you can't disqualify me uh, because I'm an ex-president. Uh, so when you have uh, competing possible interpretations, when you have uh, this, uh, when one of those interpretations would defeat a purpose of the of the impeachment process itself, uh, you're supposed to look beyond text. You look up from the four corners of the the document and look at how these terms would have been interpreted uh, by the relevant legal community at the time. And at the time of the Constitution's framing, the idea of trying someone who's no longer currently in office was hardly uh, some kind of legal novelty. There are two state constitutions for Virginia's and Delaware's that uh, uh, you could only try the governor after he'd already left office. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had been subjected to, after he had served as governor of Virginia uh, during the revolutionary period, had been subjected to an impeachment inquiry after he left office based on his conduct as governor. Uh, at the Constitutional Convention, uh, one of the cases that gets the most discussion in the impeachment context uh, that actually led uh, eventually to the, the language high crimes and misdemeanors and Article 2, Section 4 was the case of Warren Hastings, the uh, former governor general uh, of the of India, uh, who uh, Edmund, Edmund Burke uh, pressed impeachment charges against him after he had left office. And this case was going on. It had begun uh, right before the, the Constitutional Convention. And George Mason and James Madison discussed the Hastings case. And at no point did they say, well, that's not an impeachment uh, because the guy's out of office. Uh, so I think when you take a look at how uh, the Senate's sole power to try all impeachments, when you look at how impeachment was understood uh, by the framers and ratifiers and the relevant legal community at the time, uh, it's pretty clear that it, it was not thought to be a process, all stages of which had to be completed. Uh, before the the official left office. Uh, so I think that's a better interpretation. And in any case, if uh, disqualification is on the table, I would think that that would lend relevance or at least potential usefulness to going ahead and having a trial. Yeah, well, there is the, there's the expressive function of a trial, but there's also... Uh, of the two penalties that the Constitution mentions, removal and disqualification, the latter is very much on the table. Uh, so it, uh, if taken seriously, it's not some 
performative exercise, uh, there, there's something really at stake. Uh, also, if you're going to adopt this rule of practice that says uh, impeachment in the House has to be like a full dress trial uh, and uh, everything has to be done, the, the Senate has to have a trial, another trial uh, before the, the official leaves office, you're basically saying that the impeachment power can never operate uh, in the last weeks of a presidency. And since presidents uh, historically have uh, kind of stretched their legs in their lame duck period, issuing their most controversial pardons and things of that nature, I think that's a, a bad precedent to set. This conversation has been great, Gene, but um, I hate to tell you that it is unlikely that the Senate will arrive at uh, 67 votes to convict uh, Donald Trump. So what do you say? No, you're probably right. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Senator Paul forced a vote on whether to kill the trial on these these jurisdictional grounds that we're talking about, the, the, the fact that he's an ex-president. And that Motion failed, but 45 out of 50 Republicans voted for it. So, you know, right now it looks like there are maybe five Republicans uh, who would vote to convict the president. That's not enough to get you to 67. And like I said, the, this issue is a defensible, this issue that they're hanging their hat on is a defensible one uh, constitutionally, even if I don't think it's the best uh, interpretation. Uh, but for Almost all of the Republicans taking that line, you know, maybe I think of maybe one or two exceptions, maybe Mike Lee. Uh, it's not really constitutional principle that, that's moving this. Uh, that's not what's motivating their their position. It's just this sort of high minded rationalization for ducking an uncomfortable vote. They don't have to get to the merits of what Trump did and whether it's an impeachable offense if they can just say, ah. Can, you know, what can I do? The Constitution says you can't you can't have a Senate trial of an ex-president. And uh, well, that's unfortunate that uh, it, it does seem like a foregone conclusion. I think one of the only things that could have changed that were there were early reports that uh, people, including Steve Bannon, were telling the president he should go pro se and defend himself. And that uh, one of the uh, sources of the falling out he had with his first group of lawyers was he wanted to uh, make the case on the basis that Stop the Steal was a legit concern that he won this election in a landslide. Uh, and so you could imagine a scenario where you where they had let Trump be Trump and he, he uh, either takes the stand or conducts his own defense. And well, that would have been super entertaining. And uh, it would have put a lot of Republicans who would rather duck the issue in an extremely uncomfortable uh, position. Uh, well, right now, uh, it looks like uh, Trump is going to refuse to testify. He's certainly not defending himself. Uh, so it's not going to be uh, as entertaining and edifying as it could have been, which is too bad. Gene Healy is author of the Cato paper, Indispensable Remedy, about Congress's broad impeachment powers. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 